Uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you to be in this place together, to be able to sing your praises. And, and Lord, when we do that, we're always reminded of who you are. We're reminded of oftentimes who you want us to be, which is to be more like Jesus. Our subject this morning, God, gets into that. And uh, we would ask you to challenge and encourage. Thank you for everybody who's here, Lord, especially those that are kind of checking out Deer Creek Church. It's always a, a little bit awkward to go to some place where you don't know many people. God, help us to be hospitable and uh, help us to reflect who you are, uh, not always who we are. And uh, God, be our teacher now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Well, as you know, there's a whole world of folks all around us, locally, internationally, who need to know Jesus. Uh, there are all kinds of people right here in the Denver area who don't know him, but need to know him. Uh, and we were discussing last week, we entered into this series, we were discussing last week the what, the how, the why of Deer Creek Church. And we said the what as a church is pretty simple. It's making disciples like any other church. We have been called, Matthew 28, by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. Our how is, uh, the way we talk about that is um, modeling the life of Jesus, reaching up, reaching in, reaching out, and we kind of explained what all that means last week. Our why, we said, is because there is no human problem that apprenticeship to Jesus will not solve. And I said that a bunch of times last week, but let me say it again. There really is no human problem that apprenticeship, discipleship to Jesus cannot solve, even our problem of sin, even our problem of death. And we kind of developed those thoughts last week. So as a church, we want very badly to help as many people as possible get to know Jesus. Uh, but that leads to a few questions. Namely, how do we best do that? How do we as a church best do that? What can we do to commend the gospel of Jesus to the world around us? What kind of community do we need to be so that people will look at us and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily believe everything that they believe. I'm kind of checking that out. But I'm sure glad these people are here. Look at how they love others. There's something about their faith. There's something about they're God. There's something about Jesus that creates a lot of joy and love and service and even sacrifice for other people. And so again, the question is, how can we best introduce the world, the world around us, to Jesus? I'll tell you what I think, not because you want to know, but because I get to be up here and you have to listen to what I think. You can evaluate it yourself. I hope you do evaluate it. But I don't think it's going to happen telling the world about Jesus just because we have a lot of smart people who can out-argue everybody else. Um, I don't think it's going to happen because there are a lot of clever books being written by very smart people. Don't get me wrong. I love to read clever books written by very smart people. We're Presbyterians. We love information almost to a fault. I mean, so very clever books written by very clever people. Man, that's right down our alley. But I'm just saying that smart, well-written books and smart people are probably not what by themselves is going to win the world for Jesus, nor is having a lot of technology or wow in our worship. We'd love to enter into a fundraiser where we could buy some strobe lights. And what's that stuff that, you know, the misty stuff? I mean, I'd like to walk out to mist, you know, uh, I don't think that's going to affect very many people, positively, maybe negatively, I'm not sure. I don't think we'll get more people to follow Jesus by demanding that they live 
as if they already knew Jesus when they don't. Now think about this with me. Uh, You know, uh, getting people to live their lives according to Christian moral values when they haven't actually started following Jesus. This can be difficult for churches. Does anybody remember the Starbucks controversy of about a year ago? This happened. Um, This is back around Christmas time. Uh, There was a big ruckus about Starbucks taking the snowflakes and the reindeer off their red holiday cups. But they didn't stop there. They went one step further. They actually said they were going to tell all of their employees to start saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Do you remember this? One guy out in the West Coast made a huge, huge fuss about this, saying we Christians are being persecuted by Starbucks because they're taking their snowflakes and their reindeers off the red cups. They're saying happy holidays now, not Merry Christmas. Some Christians got really up in arms about this. And I was trying to imagine what it would be like to stand before God uh, along with other persecuted Christians. And God asked, you know, how are you persecuted? And Jesus says, well, I was I was beaten, uh, I was whipped, I was crucified. And Stephen, you remember, the martyr Stephen says, you know, I was stoned to death. And John the Baptist says, I was beheaded. And the apostle Paul says, well, I was beaten, I was whipped, I was shipwrecked, I was eventually crucified. And other early Christians would say something like, well, you know, we were rounded up by Emperor Nero and we were covered in tar and we were stuck on a pole and lit on fire for him uh, to have a celebration while we burned. Others would say we were thrown to lions, we were thrown to bears in the Colosseum. People like Joan of Arc many centuries later would say, well, I was burned at the stake because of my faith and unwillingness to recant. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, I was, I was hung with only days left in World War II. I was hung because I, I wouldn't uh, go along with the Nazi, Nazi propaganda, and so the Nazis hung me. And then God would ask us, well, you know, uh, how about you? And we would say, well, you know, we had to drink Starbucks coffee out of a red cup with no snowflakes and no reindeer on it. <laughs> we had to listen to people say happy holiday to us instead of Merry Christmas. And the point of, I hope is obvious, and it's this, that I do not think the gospel of Jesus is going to win the world by our being able to pressure Starbucks employees or anyone else for that matter into saying Merry Christmas. I don't uh, think Starbucks ought to proclaim the love of Jesus. I think we, the church, should. I think that's our job. And I think we'll be doing that best when we actually live, we actually live the way Jesus lived his life. When we look at people around us and we see them the way that, the way that Jesus sees them. Uh, folks with all kinds of needs, spiritual needs, material needs, economic needs, relational needs. And because of Jesus, we actually do something about their needs. Swallow hard, because we're starting to talk now about walking into deeper waters. I think the Bible makes it very clear that God cares about people and their needs, whether that's here in Denver or in some other part of the world, doesn't matter. And I think when the church says, you know what, we're going to use our resources, our education, our connections, our networks, our experiences, not primarily to leverage our own lives and our own assets, but to help people who need help. I think that's what's going to commend the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world that we live in. That's going to get people's attention. We launched into this series, I said last week, called Tear Down This Barrier. And part of what's at the core of what we're talking about these few weeks are the words that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Now understand, the huge social and economic revolution in Paul's day involved relationships between Jewish people and Gentile people. 
I mean, this was a huge, huge wall between these two groups, Gentiles and Jews. And here's what's really interesting. Uh, nobody got together and planned this revolution, you know, to make it happen. This was not a human project. No little group of people got together in a room and kind of whiteboarded this and strategically planned out, well, we'll do this and then we'll do this and then we'll do this. In Paul's day, anti-Semitism was quite common in the Gentile pogroms of the day. Persecution of Jews, uh, Jewish people went on all the time everywhere at different periods. The Jewish response to this persecution was to have absolutely nothing to do with the Gentiles. They didn't eat with them. They would avoid talking to them. They wouldn't marry them. They certainly wouldn't sit at table with them and fellowship. If you were Jewish, it was quite common to pray this prayer. In fact, in the first century, it's pretty reasonable to think that the apostle Paul himself, being a, a Pharisee, prayed this prayer. It was a prayer that many Jews prayed every morning, many men in the Jewish faith. This is the prayer. Blessed are you, O God, who made me male, not female. Free, not slave, an Israelite, not a Gentile. That's the prayer. That's quite a prayer. <laughs> Think about it. Thank you, God, that you made me one of us and not one of them. It would be awful to be one of them. This, uh, then this same guy, this same Paul, writes to the church in Galatia, and uh, he mentions some categories. I want you to notice the categories that he writes. He says, Later on, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You notice the categories, same categories. Paul didn't cite those categories by accident when he wrote to the church of Galatia. Uh, those are the same words that Paul and other Jews would pray. God, thank you. I'm, I'm one of us, not one of them. But now something has happened in Paul as he writes to this church years later. There's no more us versus them. And that, he says, is because of Jesus. This really happened. No human being planned it. And the question, of course, is how did, how did this happen? Um, and it's, it's pretty simple, really. This happened because somebody died. It's just that simple. The world got healed or driven in a different direction as it relates to people, us versus them, because somebody died. Not because a smart group of people said, you know what, we're going to figure this out. We're going to come up with a solution. We've got this. No, somebody just died. Historical fact. This is how he did it. In Ephesians, Paul again writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. You know, right at the very beginning, when God first created human beings, Adam and Eve, God was very, very concerned and interested in this thing of oneness. God made human beings male and female. He created then the institution of marriage, an institution that really is supposed to reflect oneness. Uh, God said in Genesis 2, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is actually a picture of oneness. God himself has always been one, three in one, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But ever since sin entered into the picture, human beings have struggled a great deal with this, this thing of oneness. 
I mean, in so many ways, we destroy it. We slight each other. We injure each other. We judge each other. We devalue each other. We divide up into warring factions in our families, in our villages, in our politics, in our nations. And we even go to war and kill each other. But God doesn't give up. He had a plan right from the beginning. God sends his son, Jesus. Jesus was all about reconciling people, reconciling them to God and even reconciling them to each other. And Paul says, as Paul says, making these two warring groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And then Paul goes on to write, he does this by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new man or new humanity, a new kingdom with new citizens in it. Citizens that were very different and yet the same, one. And he says they're going to do this out of the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's Israel. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit, he writes. He has destroyed in his body, Paul says, this dividing wall of hostility. And it's sad, but our world is really, if you think about it, it's a world of walls. One of the uh, very few man-made things that you can see from, with the naked eye from outer space is what? It's the Great China Wall. <laughs> How ironic. <laughs> you know, the one thing we build you can see from outer space, it's a wall. But it's not our only wall. I mean, we've had the Iron Curtain. Uh, we have had and do have a bamboo curtain. Uh, we've had a Berlin Wall. There have always been walls. There have always been, if you will, gated communities and private clubs and apartheid and Jim Crow laws and class systems, uh, rich versus poor, nobility versus, versus peasants, walls of every description you could add to the list. And today... The most enviable wall in human existence, a wall that's actually a curtain, uh, is on every airplane. It separates people who sit in first class from people who are not first class. Two very different groups. If you're sitting in first class, a flight attendant will bring you a moist towelette to wipe the sweat from your brow and to create uh, some comfort for you. If you're in coach, you just sit in facial sweat. If you're in first class without even asking, a flight attendant will come by and give you a little bowl of nuts. Here you go, sir, right? If you sit in coach and you ask for anything, they will just say nuts to you, buddy, you know? <laughs> it's the strangest thing when you get on a plane. I have always only flown coach. Uh, I did fly first class one time in a flight um, from Istanbul to uh, Odessa, Ukraine, and it was the only time I ever got to fly first class. I never wanted it to end white tablecloth, luxurious service. The food was delicious, tons of leg room. You could push the chair back to recline. You could sleep if you want to. And um, 
anyway, when I fly, I usually find myself thinking, those arrogant people sitting up there in first class, who do they think they are? They ought to be back here with us. We the people, you know, that's where the action is. Back here, this is where the goodness is. They ought to be with us. But I do remember the one time I got to fly first class, I was just thinking those poor slobs back there in coach. I was thinking, you know, they must not function at the same high level as all of us up here in in first class. They're probably not as smart, not as accomplished as those of us who earned our way up here in first class. But here's, uh, here's what I've never seen on a plane. I've never seen anybody from first class go to that dividing wall, rip down that curtain, tear it in two, and say, I am breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. From now on, we will eat the same food, have the same service. We will drink the same, from the same cup. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I've never seen anybody do that. They'd kill anybody who did that on a, <laughs> on a flight. It's the dividing wall of hostility. And interestingly enough, this, this wall exists not just on airplanes or neighborhoods. It, it exists right here, right here in our hearts. It's us versus them. You hear it all the time. You see it all the time. My well-being versus their well-being. My advancement versus their advancement. My security versus their security. My comfort versus their comfort. This is all over the place in our world. Us versus them. And so we build walls. We put up walls. There's a poem that I love. Some of you will be familiar with it. It's by Robert Frost. It's called The Mending Wall. It's a great poem. Uh, It's about this farmer who uh, every spring walks his property line, uh, walks the boundary with his neighbor, and his neighbor's on the other side walking the property line, the boundary with him. Because every spring there would be these stones and these rocks, these bits of the wall which would fall down during the winter. And so the wall needed to be repaired, right? And uh, this is what Robert Frost writes. He says, something there is that doesn't love a wall because it's always crumbling and falling down. And his character in the poem, as they walk, says to his neighbor, you know, I wonder, maybe we don't need a wall. Well, that's kind of a shocking statement for this person to make. And so the neighbor, the other neighbor responds back very quickly, good fences make good neighbors. You've heard that before. Good fences make good neighbors. And then he says, you know, spring is the mischief in me. And I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors, he asks. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. Now understand, the Apostle Paul makes this very, very clear to us that that something that does not love a wall that wants it down is the kingdom of God. In fact, it's Jesus. Jesus hates the walls that separate people. Paul was living in a day when he got to see walls come down. And again, nobody planned this. This wasn't uh, a, a SWOT analysis of some sort. It just happened because a guy died. And then as a matter of historical reality, Paul says Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his body, in his flesh. Let me reflect with you for a moment on that. What does that mean, this idea that this hostility, this dividing wall was torn down in the body, the the flesh of Jesus? Well, think about it. When you're hostile towards somebody, do you like to be in their presence? Do you like to see their body? Do you like to look at their face? Probably not. 
And it's not a coincidence that this hostility that exists between people was something that had to be paid for in the flesh, the flesh of Jesus, Jesus' body. He took the hostility of Jew versus Gentile, male versus female, slave versus free. He took that hostility on himself. When they put a crown of thorns and pushed it down on his head and the blood started flowing, he was taking that hostility. When they whipped his back, when they put nails in his hands to to attach him to a cross, a wooden cross. When they pierced his side with a spear, when they hung his body there on the cross, and then when when he died and they closed him in a tomb and rolled a stone across, it was in his body that Jesus was paying for the hostility that we're talking about. Jesus felt all those temptations that you and I feel to give in to hostility, only he didn't. Our nation right now, Any hostility in our nation? Wow. I don't know that I've ever seen it worse in my lifetime. And I'm well into my 40s. I mean, you see it clenched fists and gritted teeth. And you know what? We want to see them destroyed. We roll our eyes, shake our heads. What's wrong with those people? Dividing wall of hostility so comes in so many shapes, so many sizes, so many different kinds of walls. But here's the thing. Jesus, with his body, died. And in so doing, he was loving people of all stripes, all sizes, all persuasions. And, and it was with his mouth, I believe, that Jesus said these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Incredible grace. He destroyed this hostility with his body. Let me me kind of show you what I mean. I'll give you an example of of this working out. Let's take the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, arguably you could say, is one of the biggest Gentile haters in the world. He was a Pharisee. Wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. Prided himself on hating Gentiles. Thought that the barrier dividing him from them, this wall of hostility, was a good thing. A God-honoring thing. Let's keep it in place. Let's build the wall higher. But again, this is a matter of historical record. Because this man, Jesus, died and then was raised again. And then meets Paul on a road to Damascus to go persecute people who follow Jesus. That's what he was up to. But when he meets Jesus, man, everything is turned upside down. He does a 180. Because you see, this man, Jesus, who was raised again, uh, this, this Jesus who Paul was hating, Paul found loving him. And it just rocked, completely rocked. It changed Paul. Paul, the biggest Gentile hater, the biggest wall builder of all, started Can you imagine this? The revolution, the transfer, started tearing walls down. Paul. It's very interesting. Some of you will know about Paul's name. In the Bible, numerous times, folks' names get changed because God changes their name. God changes them. Generally, there's always a story behind it, and generally, it's always God who makes the change. Uh, For example, there's Abram. His name becomes Abraham, father of many nations. There's Jacob, the deceiver, who becomes... Israel, one who wrestles with God. There's Simon, who becomes Peter, Petros, little rock, upon whom Jesus says, I will build my church. And there's Saul, 
Saul had been named for King Saul, the very first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, what's so interesting about this is Jesus didn't change Saul's name. Saul changed his own name to Paul. You see, Saul was a Jewish name. Paul, Paulos, is a Greek name, a Gentile name. And Saul wants to reach Gentiles now. (laughs) I mean, he now wants barriers to be broken down. This is remarkable. Saul is a very different man because of Jesus. He wrote these words to a church in Corinth. He said, to the weak, I became weak. Anybody want to become weak? Of course not. Nobody wants to become weak. But Paul says, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And what he means by saving, he just means so that people can know about Jesus, so that people can know who Jesus is. Saul says, I'll become Paul. I'll become one of them. I'll take one of their names. Now, understand, folks, we're here to be like Paul because of what Jesus has done. We are meant to be a community that tears down barriers, reaches out to others who are not like us, cares about the needs of others, spiritual needs, physical needs, emotional and relational needs. We are meant to be, and the language of scripture is is this, agents of reconciliation. That's who we're meant to be. We're here because something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. The wall of sin that separates me from God and you from God that condemns me to isolation, to hell, to aloneness, to a selfish ego, to death has been torn down by Jesus in his body on the cross. Jesus transcended the Old Testament ceremonial law, the law that made a huge distinction between Gentile and Jew. Jesus came and fulfilled that law for us, a law we could never fulfill. Also the moral law. The law that divides us from God because we are sinful and he is not. Jesus came and fulfilled that law for us, tore that barrier down. And because of his tearing down of these walls of hostility, we can now be reconciled to God. That's the good news of the gospel. And what is more, we can also be agents of reconciliation. We too now represent Jesus to others. Go figure. Sometimes we don't do it very well. That's a privilege that we have of knowing him and of following him. And in so doing, we are to bring down the dividing walls of hostility in our world. Walls between the haves and the have-nots. Walls between the educated and the uneducated. Walls between the powerful and the powerless. Whether that's in, it doesn't matter, Ukraine, Myanmar, Lebanon, Guatemala, the Baker neighborhood just north of us or right here in Littleton. All places where God has led us to partner in ministry with others so that we can be barrier breaker downers. You see, we ourselves, along with our partners in ministry, have a ministry of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul understood this. His ministry actually embodied this as he took the message of Jesus to people whose cultures once would have been wholly offensive to him. But now, because of Jesus, he found himself loving and 
serving and even sacrificing for people he once despised and detested. It's a remarkable transformation. Paul wrote to a largely Gentile church in Corinth that he had had a hand in planting and in creating. And these are the words he wrote. He says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassador as though God were making his appeal through us to others. The truth about Jesus. Now, there's so many ways that we do this. We become ministers of reconciliation when we love our neighbors. When we help them, when we reach out to them, when we get to know them, become friends to them. We become ministers of reconciliation when we observe a need and we go, huh, I might be able to meet that need. And so I reach across a fence or a border or a barrier of some sort just to serve someone else. And I do that because of how Jesus has served me. So many ways that we do this. Another way that we do this as a church, and that's what I want to focus in on in the minutes that remain. Every time this year, um, or every year this time, might be a better way to say that, we remember and we celebrate our partnerships with people locally and internationally. Uh, these are people that we pray for. These are people that we as a church support financially, people who help us tear down barriers, who help us with this ministry of reconciliation. These are strategic partners. Every year at this time, we ask you, all of you, to pray about partnering with us to make a difference. If you follow Jesus, and if becoming more like him matters to you, if you want to wade deeper in those waters that we were singing about earlier, a real practical way to do it is to think about what we're talking about right now. Strategic partnerships. This year, uh, we're seeking to raise $121,000. Anybody just want to give that? I'll just close in prayer. Uh, oh, Dave, you raised your hand. Yep, thank you. Let me close. Yeah. Uh, we're seeking to raise $121,000, just a little above that, to add to what we give in our general fund towards missions in order to support these, these uh, ministry partners. And we ask you unapologetically to consider financially supporting our efforts in this. These are dollars that we give that are over and above what we normally give, regularly give. Now, again, if, if you're visiting here and new here, I'm not really talking to you. You're kind of you're watching a family meeting <laughs> take place, and you're, you're kind of an observer on this. Um, uh, right now, 44% of the dollars that we give to missions go towards planting churches because we believe wholeheartedly that's the most effective way to extend the kingdom of Jesus. Plant these centers of believers where they gather and they kind of do what we do here and they, they study and how to practice being a follower of Jesus. And so we put the biggest portion of our funds and mission towards this thing of church planting. That's why Brett and Aaron Western are here among us. We've, we are talking to them and working with them over a period of three years to see a, a church plant happen here in the Denver area. But also in places like Guatemala and places like Myanmar and places like Ukraine, uh, those, we have church planting efforts taking place there as well. And when those churches get planted and are healthy, understand they become agents there in those cultures and in those places for tearing down barriers of hostility. Let me give you an example. 
In Myanmar, we have a, a relationship with someone there named Rova. Many of you know about Rova. Many of you prayed for Rova. Rova and his wife, uh, Moite, are just incredible people. For one thing, one of the things that makes them so unique is they're in a culture where that's, that's, there is a Christian population, a small Christian population, and then the vast majority of the nation is Buddhist. What's so interesting is that historically, Christians have not reached out to Buddhists in this part of the world. They just kind of look at them as us versus them. And they don't really try to tell them about Jesus. Not a lot of cross-pollination going on there. Not with Rova. Rova feels a particular calling to take the gospel of Jesus to the Buddhist population. So the church that Rova's planted, about a third or more of it are Buddhists who've just come to know Jesus through the ministry and the preaching and teaching and, and uh, service ministry uh, that Rova and his wife uh, Moite un- undertake there. Also, as you can imagine, anytime you move into any culture, you become aware of needs that are there. And then you find Jesus. He, he, I so wish he didn't do this, but he does this all the time. He kind of speaks to you and you find yourself, oh, there's a need. Oh, oh man, that's going to that's gonna take resources, going to take time. I'd like to ignore it, but Jesus won't let me, so I'm going to do something about it. One of the ways that this has happened with Rova, he and Moite have uh, decided to create a ministry, a youth development center, because so many children, when they get to the middle ages, or, uh, to the middle school age, that's a ceiling for them, educationally. They don't get educated beyond that. Why? Because families are so poor that usually the children have to go to work just to survive, just to help the family survive. And Rova and Moite decided they're, they're going to create a center. They're using the building that we help them build financially. They're creating a center there for young men and women to continue in their education so that they can go beyond middle school into what we would call high school right into college and graduate uh, just having the knowledge and the education necessary that, that lets them become leaders in the culture. What's more, it just so happens that Rova is <laughs> teaching these young boys and girls about Jesus and discipling them, and they are committed to following Jesus. And this is just another way that Rova and Moite want to bless uh, the, the nation there that they're a part of. And that walls come down. Walls come down. In Guatemala, uh, we have ministry partners there, and we've told you about them. You know, we uh, do water projects. Kirk and Gloria Douglas lead these projects once, twice a year. We go into villages there, um, and in every one of these villages where there's a water project, there's a church that has been planted and has been put there. And the church becomes a center in that village for obviously teaching people about Jesus, but also a center for teaching people about better methods of farming and raising animals and using farm animals and a center for educating people about better hygiene. Uh, As we told you before, uh, this is back in Christmas, and I love you guys for this. I love being a part of a church that cares about these things. We talked about villages like Zacapa, an infant mortality rate over 40%. We wanted to raise $17,500 just as a gift from this congregation to go to a couple of villages and put clean water systems there. You gave about $35,000. And, uh, and so Kirk took that money and he went to the people who sell the pumps and the, all the things. Kirk Douglas took this money and he went to the, those folks and he said, what can we get, you know? And they said, well, if you'll buy it all in a bundle and all right now in the winter, we'll, we'll double it for you. So <laughs> the money that we gave, the 35000 ends up becoming more like 70000 in terms of what it's going to buy. Now, we didn't know that at the time. It's just 
How cool is that? I mean, massively, massively cool. And we're going to be able to now affect so many more villages than just Zacapa. Um, it, a lot more villages. And so when we go to Guatemala and our ministry partners there, they're planting churches. They're helping people live and survive. They're putting in water systems that help these villages thrive. And they're telling people about Jesus. It doesn't get better than that. Uh, we support Ashley Dykstra with Horizon Ministry. Talk about tearing down barriers. This is an interesting ministry. Uh, the ministry is, <clears throat> this ministry is mainly to Muslims uh, in five key areas. They actually have uh, chapters all over the world, but in five key areas, Lebanon, Turkey, Syria, uh, and Jordan. And they simply share Jesus with Muslims. And you would think that would just hit a brick wall, but it doesn't. Last year alone, 411 Muslims professed faith in Jesus and are walking with Jesus now. And last year, they served thousands and thousands of meals to refugee, Muslim refugee families. And they assisted in hundreds uh, of situations with medical aid and help. These are our partners in ministry. We get to be a part of that. In many cases, too, they run into these stories. I bet some of you have heard this. The Muslims that they're, they're sharing with and so on say, yeah, I had a dream. That guy you're talking about, Jesus, was talking to me in my dream telling me I should come follow him, but I don't know anything about him. What can you tell me? I'm like, whoa, you know, absolutely amazing, wonderful, miraculous things happening in, in that part of the world. And again, we're very, very privileged to have partners like that, brave enough to go into those areas, uh, clear enough with the gospel, and now they're, they're seeing churches formed around people professing faith in Jesus in areas of the world that are predominantly Muslim. Uh, and then right here in our own backyard, the list is long. I don't get to mention all of them, but, you know, we partner with Columbine Community Village, which is a ministry right here that helps the elderly stay in their homes, provides services for them, all kinds of different services that helps them thrive and stay in their homes. Uh, it's a ministry partner. It's breaking down barriers. A lot of times the elderly feel uh, alone and isolated. I speak for them. But this is a great ministry that tears down those kinds of barriers. Love, Inc. is a ministry that our church uh, helped to, to found with some other churches. This is a ministry that cares for people that have all kinds of needs, uh, often coming out of poverty or educational kinds of issues. Love, Inc. is there to address these kinds of concerns, helping single moms, uh, single parents, uh, diapers for children. I mean, the list is a mile long of the kinds of things that Love, Inc. provides. Third story, Amy Beth Larson uh, up in uh, Baker neighborhood ministers to and cares for and constantly reaches out to, you, you could almost say she mothers, so many children in this neighborhood where she lives. She's a beacon of light um, to a community that really needs light. She's one of our partners. Bridges International is another ministry. We have several people involved with Bridges International, which is a crew ministry. Uh, Hope Denecki, uh, BJ and Robin Flinner, uh, the Flinners are in Philadelphia. Hope works right here in Denver. They connect with foreign students. I mean, so much of the foreign population comes to our own shores here. This is a ministry that actually connects with those foreign students, gets to know them, cares about them, becomes good friends with them, and as it's appropriate, shares the love of Jesus with them. And it's just a very cool, very powerful, powerful ministry. Andrew Fuller, connecting with, uh, he's with Athletes in Action, connecting with athletes on college campuses. Jim Dinges, Lifelines. Uh, Jim's got an interesting ministry. In fact, you know, we invited you to the banquet 
uh, come this Friday and join us. Good food. I don't cook it. It's catered. It's actually good food. You'll hear some great stories about some of our partners. Jim Dinges is going to be a, the speaker there. Jim's uh, ministry is a, it, it's an outdoor ministry uh, of evangelism. Can you imagine how effective evangelism is when you get somebody on a rope swinging on a cliff, <laughs> no way down unless you help them, you know, you want to put your faith in Jesus? Yes! You know, it's a very effective ministry. Jim does this, and uh, we'll get to hear a little bit about it. But it's, you know, very cool. And then it, then it spills into discipleship. As people come to know Jesus, they get off the cliff, but they find other cliffs in their life. And you know what? They find Jesus to be sufficient for helping them navigate that. It's an awesome, awesome ministry. We have other ministry partners too, but understand... In all of these strategic ministry relationships, ministry partner relationships, the objective here is to tear down barriers of hostility, to bring people to God and to bring people together who would ordinarily, frankly, mostly just hate each other, us versus them. And this is what we do together as people who follow Jesus, not because it's comfortable, not because it's convenient, but because this is what Jesus did for us. And this morning, I invite you to join in. Come to the banquet, learn more, but over and above that, do something that really matters with your money, which I know you have. Every one of us in this room has some form of discretionary capital. You know, an awful lot of the times, uh, those of us who have things, have resources, we just live more and more and more in our own little world, which keeps shrinking and becomes just more and more about us. Um, and oftentimes because of that, we don't see need. We avoid seeing it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to look because seeing need makes us feel bad. But friends, as disciples of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, we don't get to only care about ourselves. We, we just don't. It doesn't work that way. Last week, I said that the church is the only institution that does not exist for itself. It actually exists for the sake of others. And that's just a fact. It's just a fact. Jesus said this. He said, I tell you the truth. Anytime he says that, it's like, hey, listen up. This is important. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. There you have it. As we tear down barriers, as we build relationships, as we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others and the needs that they have out of the surplus that we have, we are actually, believe it or not, serving Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Now, you know, the evil one, if you have resources, the evil one will try to separate you from other people's needs and isolate you from those needs. He'll say to you, don't look, don't read, don't watch, don't talk, don't go, don't touch, don't give, and on and on and on it goes. The evil one wants us to abandon any notion of this ministry of reconciliation. He wants us to see the world as us versus them, black and white. He wants us to forget that everywhere we go, like it or not, we are ambassadors for Jesus. And friends, I would just say this. Deer Creek Church, as a church, we will not neglect 
nor forget who we are and why we exist. And so for God's sake, we are here to be a ministry of reconciliation. We're not here to do services and stuff like that. No, we're meant to be a ministry of reconciliation. We are meant to be ambassadors for Jesus. We are meant actually to make disciples of people here, but also of all nations. And so I would just say to you unapologetically, prayerfully join us, would you? You know, you've got information in your, in your bulletins that we gave you, kind of tells you where the dollars go, tells you what we're trying to raise. You've also got a faith promise card. We give these out every year this time, and we beg you to give them back in two weeks, and you give them back in four. And uh, the way this works is, the way we, it works in our family is we pray about this. God, what can we give over and above what we normally give? And we generally get a consensus uh, between, this is Holly and I, and we fill this thing out and we turn it in and then we trust God to provide that amount and he has. Um, but the reason this matter, this, these little cards matter is it helps us to budget, helps us to have some idea uh, where we're gonna be with the 121,000. If we like only get 80, then you know, we, we just cut some missionaries. <laughs> no, really, by the grace of God, we've, uh, we've always been able to continue in supporting them. But, but So I would ask you to pray about that, and I would ask you to take the faith promise. There's buckets near, back near the doors, and you can drop them in there if you want. And, and uh, if you feel God is leading you, take some weeks to pray about it. Uh, but join us. Come join us. There's no better adventure than this. There's no better use of your resources than this kind of thing. So if God leads you as you pray, then... Make a difference with your resources that will matter for all eternity. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, uh, we acknowledge that our world is in a bit of a mess. Uh, we, we acknowledge that we <laughs> are in a bit of a mess. Uh, whether it's Guatemala to the Middle East, Syria to Pakistan, or right here in the Littleton, Denver area, um, whether it's in our homes or in our hearts, there are walls that we erect that we understand Jesus died to bring down. God, forgive us. God, help us. Help us look at and love the world the way you do, Jesus. Help us to be about your work together. Help us to live like true disciples, Jesus. May this be true of us, individually, collectively. And may oneness and peace that has been purchased through your body, Jesus, on the cross, may that oneness and may that peace be evident in us as we reach out to love others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.